Good morning. Uh, As God taught us last week through Pastor Matt, uh, when we humbly approach his word, he says that we are to come to him to ask him to open his word to us, and we are to ask him to also open us to his word. So we humbly ask our Father that this morning through the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's uh, reading is from Luke's book of Acts, and it's in chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. I want you to picture something in your minds as we ease into this passage of Scripture together. Who are you connected with? Or to be maybe more grammatically correct, to whom are you connected? Just think about the people in your life, the relationships that you have. Imagine in your mind's eye that they all sort of lined up or crowded up here onto the stage. Just try to picture the people that are in your life, that you're connected to, that are connected to you? Is it a lot of people? Would they be overflowing the stage? Is it just a couple people? Try to line them up in order. Who are you most connected to down the scale to those who maybe are just more like acquaintances that you're really not all that connected to, but they're in your life? Just try to picture this whole bunch of people. What connects you to all these people? And as you're thinking about your connections with people, did you know that being connected to people is absolutely central to what it means to be Christians together? That our connectedness to one another is at the core of what it means and what it looks like to be Christians together, to be the church together. We've been revisiting the foundations, trying to just sort of relearn with a fresh Slate, what it means to be Christians together. What does it mean to be the church? We've seen several things. I'm not going to dwell on them long. I'm just going to remind you. We've seen that it involves trusting in Jesus Christ confidently because of the resurrection, because people actually saw him alive after they saw him killed. It involves following Jesus submissively because he is the Lord. He has divine authority. It involves depending on the Holy Spirit prayerfully, because that's where divine power is. It involves speaking the good news of Jesus Christ. It involves, like Julia mentioned, using the Bible rightly to point to Jesus Christ and to shape the way we think. These are sort of some of the foundational elements of what it is to be the church together, and we're going to land on this final shaping theme of unity this morning. 
We haven't said everything there is to be said about being the church in the book of Acts by any means. We could go on for a lot longer than this. But this is a good place to land. This kind of draws all those together. It's good in preparation to head into Easter beginning next Sunday. So we're going to talk about unity. We're in a world that really values, we're in a culture anyway in America, that really, really values independence and privacy and autonomy and personal space. Anonymity. These are cultural values. They're really not Christian values per se, though. As Christians in the church, we live in a whole different world, an alternate universe almost to this world, where we value dependence, interdependence upon each other, closeness, openness, knowing each other. We as the church are meant to be a world of connection in a world of loneliness and isolation, like a, a bubble where people embrace one another in, in a world where everybody fears one another. We're meant to be a bubble of hospitality in a world that's characterized more by hostility. We're meant to be a bubble of unity that stands in stark contrast to the disunity and divisions of the world. Jesus said that's what's going to make you mark you as my disciples, is how you love one another. So we're going to look at this passage that Julia read. We're not going to jump all over the place in Acts. We're just going to stick in this one passage. We're going to observe the early church here. We'll be like Christmas carol ghosts. You remember the Christmas carol where it takes Ebenezer back in time and he just looks through windows and sees what's going on there? That's kind of what we're doing. We're going back in time. The Holy Spirit's taking us back. We're going to look through this fogged up glass and see how the early church lived, how they related to one another, how united they were. And my hope, I'll just go and put all my cards on the table. Here's my hope for us. I'm hoping that as we do meditate on this passage, that God will expand our expectations for what unity can look like among us. Expand them and deepen them. And that he'll strengthen our determination to live in unity together. So prepare yourself to walk out of here with higher expectations for what unity could look like and a stronger determination to be united with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we all on board? You with me? Okay. No sleeping this Sunday. Time change was last week. Now Julia read our passage, and we're going to move through it together, and we're going to notice two things. First, I want you to notice the breadth, not, not bread, breadth of unity in the early church, and then the depth of unity in the early church. So first, the breadth. Christians are broadly united. You could even say that Christians are comprehensively united. What I mean by this is you're not limited in the types of Christians you can be united with. You're not limited in the types of Christians that you can be united with. The types of believers. Just look at some of the word choices in the passage. You can look on your Bible or up on the the wall here. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number. Not half of the number, not 75% of the number, the full number. 
of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You're, if you have the NIV Bible on your lap, it probably says all of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. If you have the King James Bible on your lap, it probably says the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The idea is there were thousands of believers now, and they were all united, the full number of them. You read on, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one. It wasn't as if there was a movement of people liquidating their assets so that they could help those in need. And many people were doing it, but some people said, not me. I'm not going to sell my land to help out those poor Christians. According to what it says, no one has talked that way anymore. Nobody said that his own stuff was his own stuff anymore. This all-encompassing language continues on if you'll skip down to verse 34. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them. It doesn't say there were fewer needy people among them. It says there was not a needy person. There was, you couldn't find one. All the needy people were involved in this. It says, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So as many people that own stuff use their stuff to bless those that didn't own stuff. So you see this all-encompassing language, full number, no one, not a needy person, as many as were owners of houses and lands. Verse 35 at the end, it says that the houses and lands were sold so that the proceeds could be distributed to each as any had need, each, any. The language is meant to convey a very singular idea, comprehensiveness. Everybody was involved in this unity. Now, if you're particularly astute and you've had your coffee this morning and you're thinking through this and you know your Bible, you may remember that the very next story, the very next passage is Ananias and Sapphira or Sapphira. Now, that would seem to contradict this comprehensiveness of unity, right? Immediately, wouldn't it? Well, what about these two? How united could they have been in heart and soul? If you're not familiar with it, Right after this beautiful paragraph depicting the unity of the early church, it says that these two people lied to the church, saying that they were giving a higher percentage of their money than they actually were. And then they dropped dead. God killed them, which that's a whole other sermon. Does that contradict this idea of comprehensive unity? I think it just highlights what we have here. What we have here is not the result of an exhaustive survey where Luke went around and literally asked every believer who was a believer in there during this time how they felt and how they were connected with all the other believers. And that he's not being a mathematician here. He's being a, a Holy Spirit-inspired historian. So he's not saying literally every single person. He's saying the pervading characteristic of the early church was not disunity. It was not division. It was unity. The pervading characteristic. If you got into a time machine after church this Sunday and zipped back through time to the early church and lived with them for this whole next week and then zipped back here to report to Doolin's Grove what you saw, you would very likely say they were just really, really united. Everybody was united with everybody. 
Now, you probably didn't meet every single person, but the pervading sense was, man, these people were really united. Nobody was divided from anybody. They didn't have, like, separate denominations that wouldn't work together. They didn't have separate churches and subgroups for every subculture that didn't worship together. They all seemed to be together in a sense that is different. And it was remarkable. And it was especially noticeable between the wealthy and the poor. You know, in that society, the wealthy and the poor really did not have a whole lot of unity together. But within the church, they did. Their unity in Christ blasted right through the barrier and the border of economic differences. And then we know from the rest of the book of Acts that it didn't just blast through the border of economic differences. It blasted through the border of racial differences. It even blasted through the border of language differences. They were remarkably, comprehensively, broadly united. Now, I think in response to this, we should expand our expectations for what our unity could look like. We should, in response to this, once and for all, by the power of of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we should put to death our instinct to be selective in who we'll be united with. We have an instinct to be selective about who we'll unite with. And our instinct is to unite with people that are just like us. It's natural to the human condition to be drawn to people that are just like us. But we're not natural people anymore. We're what the Bible calls spiritual people. We have the Holy Spirit now. We're being reconstructed through the Holy Spirit to not look like natural sinful men anymore, not like men of the world but like Jesus Christ. And part of that, putting off this old self and putting on the new self, is putting off a selectivity about who we will associate with. Putting off a selectivity about who we'll be united with. You know, anybody can be united with people that are just like them. That doesn't require the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That doesn't require the Holy Spirit Anybody can be united with people just like them. But we're not just anybody anymore. We're Christians. So let's not, let's not settle for a worldly version of unity where young people only unite with other young people, but not with older people. Let's be a church where country folks don't just unite with other country folks, but also with city folks who are believers. Educated Christians don't only unite with other educated Christians, but with lesser educated Christians. Stylish Christians don't just unite with other stylish Christians, but also with out-of-style Christians. Married Christians don't just unite with other married Christians, but with single Christians and widowed Christians and divorced Christians. Traditional Christians don't just unite with other traditional Christians, but with contemporary Christians. Socially graceful Christians don't just unite with other socially graceful Christians, but also with socially awkward Christians. Where we don't 
just gravitate toward and open ourselves up to and lock into relationships with people that we easily understand and who are just like us. But even those who are a bit of a mystery to us and that we don't understand and where it's not all that easy. The Christians then had a broad, even comprehensive unity, and and that's our heritage, and that's who we are. They also had a deep unity. Christians are comprehensively united, and they're deeply united. What I mean by deep unity is the opposite of shallow, the opposite of superficial. Look back at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. Your heart is the center of your being. Your soul can mean one of two things biblically. It can either mean your your source of life, your source of your, your vibrancy and your living, or it can mean your mind, the source of your thoughts and your thinking. Either way, the, the picture is clear. They, they were united down deep from the core of who they were and how they thought and where their life came from. The biblical call to unity isn't a superficial call to socialize more. It's deeper than that. It's recognizing and living in light of our deepest bonds that we share with every other Christian across the world and throughout all time just by virtue of being believers. Now you might say, well, I'm an introvert, so I don't like being around people. I like being alone in a room with a book. Me too. That's, that's, that is me. I love you guys so much. I am exhausted after Sunday. I do much better if I can be with one of you at a time. As an introvert, being around everybody at once is really taxing for me. Not because I don't love you, it's just who I am. So I, I sprint home once it's all done, or crawl home, and I just want to just lay down. And I'm not a real social guy. I'm not trying to say, you need to socialize more. Now what we have is, is deeper and different than that. Anybody can socialize. But we're not just anybody, we're Christians. So just put all that out of your mind as we're thinking about unity. Just put all that. I don't like to be social. Uh, you know, I, I like, I'm a homebody. I don't like to go out and just put all that out of your mind. That's not what we're talking about. Put all that out of your mind. Bring to mind instead what is common among us as believers. What is common among us as believers? Let's think about it for a second. You remember, we are connected on a level deeper than a shared economic situation. We're connected on a level deeper than a shared cultural background, deeper than shared lifestyle, deeper than shared preferences, deeper than shared race. Deeper than shared life stage. This is why our fellowship can be broad, because it's deep. If you think of a tree, 
A tree won't spread out super, super wide branches without spreading out super, super deep roots. Otherwise, it'll just topple over. We could have broad, comprehensive unity because we could have deep unity in Christ. And we can connect deeper than the levels of all of the differences that we have. And we don't really even have that many differences here among this congregation. But that could change over time. Lord willing, it will. So back then, the wealthy, the landowners and the owners of houses, when they saw their brothers and sisters in need who didn't have those things and who were needy, they didn't see a stranger from a different, a different lifestyle, a different culture, a different economic situation. They saw someone just like them, someone who had been cut down to the heart by the gospel just like they had. They didn't see people that weren't able to shop at the same stores, wear the same kind of clothes, drive the same sort of car. They saw people just like them, people who were repenting and turning from their former way of life to follow Jesus Christ. They didn't see strangers. They saw brothers and sisters. People still dripping with the same baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's expand our expectations and our determination for what unity can look like in terms of comprehensiveness, how broad it can be, but also in terms of depth, how deep it can be. Don't settle for connecting on the level of sports and the weather. Let's recognize and live in light of the deeper bonds that we have. You know, you and I, you know, many of you, I haven't seen you all week. And yet we are completely connected as we pick up together. Because you and I are the same. We, we've had our sins forgiven. We've had our sins blotted out. We've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you is the Holy Spirit in me. We've been called by the Lord God unto himself. Now, I asked at the beginning, who are you connected with? With whom are you connected? Now, the answer, if you're a Christian, if you are trusting and following Jesus Christ, the answer is every believer everywhere, anywhere, anytime you're connected to. See, the, your reality is that you're united with these people. We don't always live well in light of it, but that's our reality. The full number of those who believe. That's what it looks like to be Christians together. We trust confidently in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection, but we don't do it alone individually. We do it together. We follow Jesus Christ as our Lord because he's got divine authority, but we don't do that individually. We do that together. We depend prayerfully on the Holy Spirit for the power needed to obey Jesus Christ, but we don't do that off on our own. We do it together. We speak the gospel, we use the Bible, but not alone, together. When you're saved, you're not saved and then sent off on your way. You're saved and gathered into a family. You can't be a Christian out on your own. The unity in Christ is too central to what it means to be a Christian. Now, I want to land on a really practical note because this is a really practical passage. So we'll close with this. 
Their unity was comprehensive, their unity was deep, and their unity was practical. Their unity in Christ expressed itself in an extremely practical way. Did you notice what it was? They helped each other. That's it. That's, that's what's here. Now, there's other things that could be said about how unity works itself out in the church, but for now, this is enough for us this morning. They helped each other. Really pretty simple. They stopped saying that their stuff was their stuff, and they started sharing everything. That's what we saw in verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What God had done for them through Jesus Christ shook loose their grip on their stuff and made them instead cling tightly to their fellow believers. And people became more important than possessions. And so they helped each other. They liquidated their assets so that they could give to one another. That's what we saw down in verse 34. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So it wasn't just theoretical. So it's not enough for us to just be theoretical about it. It's not enough to say, well, that was neat. Unity's cool. I'm pro-unity. No, it affects the way we live and the way we act and the way we treat one another. Paul talks about the church like a human body. This would be a good image to end on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says the church is like a body, and there's many members, individuals, but one, united as part of one body, the body of Christ. He says in there that we have the same care for one another. When one member suffers, every member suffers, just like your body. So let's say hypothetically you hurt your foot. Is, that, is it only your foot's problem? Is the rest of your body unaffected? No, if you hurt your foot and you're no longer able to put any weight on your foot, your whole body gets involved in the situation. Your other foot, your other leg takes up more responsibility. Your hands get involved doing what they need to do to stabilize and take care of that foot. Your eyes get involved looking for obstacles. Your mind gets involved. Your mouth gets involved saying, hey, I need a hand with this. It's the same way with the church. When these wealthy believers saw a believer hurting or in need or in pain, they looked down and they said, my body is hurting. I must do something. They didn't say that guy over there is having a hard time. They said, my body is hurting. I need to do something. I need to recognize the breadth and depth of our unity with all other believers. And as we walk out, just ask yourself, who could you help this week? Think about the other people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe within our church. Who needs help? Who may be hurting? What can you do for one of your brothers and sisters this week? Maybe outside of our church. What's the Lord stirring? Who's the Lord bringing to mind? Who might be confused and in need of prayer? Who might be lonely in need of a listening ear? Who might be lost in need of advice? Who might be weak in need of strengthening? Who might be discouraged in need of encouragement? Who might be in sin in need of confrontation? Who might be sick in need of comfort? You know, you are saved into a family. 
church family, a local church family, and then the capital C church family. And we're all in this together. And you have an important part to play. And one of my, well, I don't know what to call it, but something I hear is, well, I stopped going to that church and there was nothing there for me. There's just nothing there for me. I went in, I looked around to see what was there for me, and there was nothing. And biblically, you want to say, what are you talking about? It's not a, a J.C. Penny. Nothing there for you? We come together, humble sinners saved by grace, not deserving to be here in unity with God by any means, and not deserving to be united with one another. And so if God brings us into a local congregation, it's not so that we could find all the riches there for us. It's so that we could be there for the other people. You have a calling, a job to do, a role to fill. There's people to serve. You know, that's the way the world thinks. The world thinks about me, 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 myself, myself, myself. But we're not like the world anymore. We're freed from all that through Jesus Christ. We're freed to be here for one another. And so the world looks upon us and they say, man, Everybody's united there. Across socioeconomic lines, across racial lines, across geographical lines, across every, every barrier, they're united. They really love each other. That's our heritage. That's who we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us, forgiving us, cleaning us up, bringing us into relationship with you drawing us into a local group of Christians so we can be Christians together, so we have, an, we have an arena to live out our calling with one another or help us to recognize and remember and live in light of our comprehensive and deep unity that we enjoy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.